Well, uh, last week we stepped out of our, our series called The Cross and the Empty Tomb because uh, we were preparing for, uh, for Hurricane Irma. And so we talked about not the cone of uncertainty, but the cone of certainty, which is found under Jesus. And so today we're back into it. We're in part two of The Cross and the Empty Tomb. And this series is simply a, for, for those of us that have been going to church a long time, it is a reminder, a reminder of why we do the things we do. Now, if church is new to you, you're trying to kind of figure it out, or maybe you've just had questions about why churches do the things they do. You know, why do you go to church? You know, why do we commune together? Why do we give our money? Why do we baptize? You know, a lot of times we just do those things. We don't stop to, to ask the question why. And maybe that's you. Maybe you've wondered about those things. Or maybe since we've begun this series, you're like, no, I never even thought to ask that question. I just always did it because that's what we've always done. Well, this series is designed to answer those questions. For those that might be raising those questions. And for the rest of us, it is a refresher and a reminder for those that we encounter that might ask those kinds of questions. Make sense? Good. So that's what we talked about. Two weeks ago, we opened it up talking about the cross and the empty tomb. And today we're going to, to get into this a little bit deeper as we begin to nuance that statement. Because ultimately, the reason why we do all the things we do, why we commune, why we give our money, why we are baptized, why we go to church, all of those things, all is motivated because of what Jesus did by going to the cross and taking all of our sin and then being resurrected and leaving behind an empty tomb that freed us from our sin and freed us from our sin and bondage. And ultimately, that is why we do the things we do. Now then, for the rest of this series, we're going to nuance that. What I mean by that is let's talk about why we go to church. You know, have you ever actually asked yourself that question? You know, why do I go to church? Who's thought about that before? Anybody? Good. A few people. Did you come up with the answer? Good. Then y'all all come up here and help me then, because that would be really helpful. Well, you know, when I was a, a little fella, my family went to church. We always did, you know. My earliest memories are when I was about two years old, and I remember sitting in the sanctuary, and I remember the preacher just, it seemed like he was yelling at us. Then as I got older, I realized he's probably just talking loud and very demonstrative. Fortunately for you guys, you don't have a preacher like that. So you're okay, and you don't have to worry about that. But I also remember pigeons flying through the sanctuary. At various times, you might be dive-bombed by one, and the preacher would say amen, and the pigeons would go, you know, it was crazy. But those are my earliest memories of church from when I was really little. Well, I remember one Sunday, we were getting ready to go, and my dad was sick, so he was staying home, and we went outside, and I don't know what I was doing, but it was obviously something that I was not supposed to do, because all of a sudden, I was really muddy right before church. Okay, now my dad is helping us, my mom get us in the car, because me and my brothers, we were still pretty young, but I was old enough to remember thinking, this is great, I don't have to go to church today, staying home with dad, so I'm like, hey, bye, 
see you, have fun. And my dad's like, nope, pick me up and toss me in the van. And I went to church completely covered in mud. Because that's what we did. You know, we went to church dirty or not. Well, a few years ago, I got to thinking about that. And I began to wonder just how many church services I may have attended in my life. So I began to kind of compile some figures based on, you know, how old I am and figuring out, you know, I've been to church most of my life and calculating the Sundays. And so I started putting these numbers together. Now then, I've missed some Sundays, but just to make sure, I subtracted an entire year off of everything just to make sure these numbers are not exaggerated. Okay, so here are the church services in the life of Jason Bennett. Sunday morning services, I approximate that I have attended 2,025 Sunday morning worship services. Sunday nights, not been to quite as many Sunday nights because, you know, we, for, you know I've, I've worked at churches that didn't have a Sunday night service. Uh, or, like for us, for a long time here, we didn't have Sunday night services or we didn't have life groups, so I subtracted some. So I came up with 1,875. Now you combine all of those Sunday morning and Sunday nights together for a total of about 3,900 church services is about what I have attended right there. Now then, I'm only 41, okay? Now I know some of you, I'd like to see your numbers on this too because I bet you've got some pretty astonishing numbers. So then you take Wednesday nights, I started thinking about that, and okay, probably close to Sunday. Let's just say... 1,885 services. Now, you take all that and put it together for a grand total of 5,785 services. And let's go ahead and add today for 5,786 worship services that I have attended. That's a lot. Within the next year, I will have been to over 6,000 worship services. Now, then, I'm probably at that point now with conferences and camps, and all of those other various things that I've been to in my life. But just thinking about the, church, uh, the, the services that churches offer, it is a staggering 5,786 worship services. Now then, why do I share those numbers with you? Because it's impressive? No. Because while I have gone to church a lot, not one of those worship services saved me. You hear that? 5,786 worship services, not one worship service saved me. That's why. There's more to it than that. It's the cross, it's the cross, and it's the, the empty tomb. Now, there are lots of reasons. There are lots of reasons why we go to church, right? Probably, some of you, just like me, you grew up going to church. And your family went to church every Sunday, or, or most every Sunday, and that's what you did. You know, your family just, you were very involved, and so as you grew up and went out on your own, you just sort of continued that, that same kind of thing, that same tradition, if you will, 
every Sunday that you'd get up and you'd get your family together and you would, would go to church. Now, there are also some that, you know, the reason why you go to church or went to church is because maybe you were forced to go to church, okay? I've met a lot of people like that. You ever been forced to go to church? Yeah, I was forced to go a few times. That time I got tossed in the van completely covered in mud, I was forced to go to church, okay? I was wanting to stay home. I was wanting a day off, okay? But there are a lot of people that the reason they went is because they were forced to go to church. There are others that say you're not a Christian if you don't go to church. There are others that, you know, they look at worship service as, you know, this is the, this kind, of, kind of a pious thing. And that I've got to go to church because i got to get that check mark. You know, i got to check that box off. Okay, I did that. I did my, my spiritual or my religious duty for the week. Others will say, well, because the Bible tells us to. There are others that say, well, it's what gets you to heaven. Or there are others that might say it keeps you from hell. Okay? Like a man that lives on the side of Interstate I-65 going towards North Alabama has a great billboard on the side of his property that runs right next to the interstate that says, Go to church or the devil will get you. And it sits right there on his property. And it has for years. Others go to please parents or grandparents or maybe even to please their kids now i've known families that they didn't really go to church anywhere but their kids wanted something and so they asked their parents to take them and then because of that because the kids got connected the parents got involved still others go for the social gathering and then some just maybe don't have anything else better to do so the question is is this why God wants us to go to church? Are these reasons why God wants us to go to church? Or is there something more to it? You see, the reason God created the organism called the church is because he knew that his people would need a place to connect. He knew that we would need a place to, to find encouragement, a place where we could go where we would, would be able to escape the, the harshities and the, the judgment and the criticism that we might run into outside of this place. It's not about going because we have to. But he knew that following Christ would not be easy. He knew that there would be difficulty with that. And sometimes it would bring about hardship. And sometimes it would bring about persecution. And he knew that we would not be able to do it alone. And so he created this church where we gather together. Where we lean on one another. Where we share our lives where we share our burdens with one another and we draw on one another for strength and encouragement right i think that's why he created the church also the christian walk was never intended to be lived in isolation right it was never intended to be lived in isolation Nowhere in Scripture do you see someone becoming a Christian and then that person being told, go off and live like a hermit for Jesus. Okay? You just, you don't read that. Now then, you see somebody who becomes a Christian in the book of Acts and then he goes back to his home country, but he's not told to go back there and don't tell anybody. Okay? Go back there and, and, and live, you know, in isolation. Because we were created 
to live in community. We are created to live in community together, leaning on our brothers and sisters, encouraging one another, holding one another accountable, which is very important, is it not? We have to hold one another accountable. In reality, I could care less why you're here. I could care less what brings any person to church. But now that we're here, I want us to take a few minutes and see if we can look and see if we can find a deeper and richer significance for why we do this, for why we, why we come to church. But before we do that, I want to I really quickly talk about what the church is. Now, next Sunday, I'm going to really unpack this a lot more as we talk about what it means to be a movement. So come back next week, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about these things that you'll see for the next few minutes, and then I'm going to build on that for next Sunday. So these two messages are kind of working together, but I think in order for us to really understand why we go to church, we first need to have an understanding about what the church is. So let's talk about what the church is. Matthew 16, 15, and 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's asking them who he is or who people say he is and he turns to them and he says but you who do you say that i am simon peter answered you are the messiah the son of the living god and i also say to you that you are peter and on this rock i will build my say this in yellow i will build my church and the forces of hades will not overpower it andy stanley says that every time we gather as believers to worship, we are a present-day fulfillment of Jesus' words 2,000 years ago. Have you ever thought about that? That right now, as we sit here in my 5,786th worship service, as we sit here together, we are fulfilling the words of Jesus as we gather as his body. And every time we gather, we do this. We we fulfill these words of Jesus. Peter's declaration that you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, that became the common ground and a compass for everything that was to follow. But something else of extraordinary significance was communicated during this exchange. Something that our English Bible translations miss, and this is so important. It is extremely important that we understand this it's the meaning of the term translated church and make sure you're paying attention because we don't want to miss this okay and keep it in your mind because next week we're really going to unpack this we know the new testament was written in greek okay the word is ecclesia and i don't like to do this a lot but just so we understand this ecclesia ecclesia is a gathering of people called out for a specific purpose and or an assembly does that make sense okay so it's a gathering it's a gathering does that make sense so as i stand here and i look out over you i see the ecclesia okay i see the gathering i see the assembly i see the community of people ecclesia never referred to a specific place but what do we say Let's go to church. And we ask that question all the time, don't we? 
Where do you go to church? Where is your church? That's what I hear all the time. People find out what I do for a living. They'll say, oh, well, where is your church? Okay? And, it, you know, we just, we, we answer that. We sort of understand what they're saying. But the problem is, by mistranslating that word, it's lost a lot of its significance. Okay? It was never meant to refer to a place, but only to a specific gathering. So it should read like this. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my ecclesia, or I will build my gathering. I'll build my assembly, and the forces of Hades will not overpower it. When Jesus used the term ecclesia, his disciples understood him to say, I'm going to build my own assembly of people, and the foundation for this new assembly will be me. Does that make sense? Okay, now come back next week because we're really going to talk about why that's important. Okay, because it affects most of the things that churches do. Our job as the church is to be a light in our community, right? Right? We're supposed to love people, serve people, accept people where they are, bring Jesus to people, and be Jesus to people. But if we misunderstand the purpose of church, church becomes just a thing we do, not who we are. Does that make sense? So next week, we're going to talk about how the church went from being a movement to just a location. And when it becomes a location, man, it loses all its power, right? So come back next week. So now that we've sort of laid some groundwork, let's think about this question. Why do we go to church? Eugene Peterson talks a lot about the church. He also talks a lot about Jesus. He mentions often the book of Luke and the, the book of Acts who were written by the same person. And they're meant to be a two-volume companion set. And what he says is that the author kind of parallels things in this. He says, and you look at Luke chapter 1 and 2, and you read about the birth of Jesus, and you read Acts chapter 1 and 2, and you're reading about the birth of Jesus' church. And so he kind of says, he kind of sees those, those parallels there. Now then, if you've been going to church for a long time like I have, then you sort of know that the book of Acts is the story of the church. And you know that in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is there with his disciples. He's getting ready to go back up into heaven. He tells them to wait. Don't go anywhere. Don't leave Jerusalem. Just wait here. Power's going to come on you from on high. It's going to be the Holy Spirit, and you're going to do some pretty incredible things. But for right now, sit tight. They enter a period of prayer for about 10 days. And then the Holy Spirit descends on them. And Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. He stands up and he preaches the first ever sermon about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The first sermon ever preached on the cross and the empty tomb is delivered by Peter. And in a few weeks, we're going we're gonna to do a recall. We're going to come back to some of that sermon. But it says that the people listened and they were moved by it. And they wanted to know what to do. 
And Peter told him, repent and be baptized, every one of you. And it says that a lot of people were. So as we get into this story, we find out, we find out what God's community was supposed to look like. So Acts chapter 2, start in verse 41. So those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. It's a big deal, right? Because you had a church that was maybe 100, 120 people. All of a sudden, they have a 3,000-day membership drive. That's a lot going on, is it not? All of a sudden, you go from just you know, a, a small group of people to a large group of people. 3,000 people accept the message and are baptized into Jesus Christ. Now then, watch what happens. Verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. Four things they committed their lives to. Okay, the apostles' teaching. Well, okay, well, what was the apostles' teaching? Some more of the last words of Jesus. Remember what he said right before he went up to heaven? Go into all the world and what? Make disciples. Teaching them to obey all the things that I've commanded you. Right, you remember that? Okay, so what are the things that Jesus taught? What are the things that Jesus taught his disciples that he wants them to pass on? Well, it's things like love God with everything you've got. Love your neighbor in the same way that you love yourself. Learn what it means to forgive people. Learn what it means to, to put others first. These are the things that you are to go and to teach. This is exactly what's happening in Acts 2. The people are listening to the apostles' teaching, which is the teaching of Jesus. About loving God and about loving others and they spent time every day learning about Jesus from the guys that walked around and listened to Jesus but not only that they spent time in fellowship they spent their lives together they they shared with one another they talked about their problems they talked about their issues they're talking about what this new life in Jesus means they spent time together they broke bread together. And I think that means that as they're sitting down and they're eating together in one another's houses, they're also talking about the cross and the empty tomb. They're talking about what Jesus' life means to them. They're sharing in communion through a common meal as they gather and they talk about Jesus and Him giving up His life. And because He gave up His life, we now have new life. They shared their life together around the table. Table fellowship is so important. And then they devoted themselves to prayers, to approaching the, approaching the throne room of grace. And it says, then a great fear came over everyone, and fear just means a reverence and, and awe. Many wonders and signs were being performed 
through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and had everything in common. So they sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had need. And every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex. And they broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And every day the Lord added to them those who were being saved. What Luke is doing right here is he is giving us a picture of the first ecclesia, the first assembly, the community, the gathering, or to use our word, the church. This is what it looks like. This is what it means to be a to be a Christ-centered community. You see a group of people who have, who have gathered together, who have everything in common, who look around and say, hey, look, if anybody has got a need, let us know, and we will take care of it. Who spent time together sharing their lives, sharing their stories, sharing meals. And you know what? The, the more I think about things, I'm becoming more and more convinced that church growth is not going to come through large outreach events so much. Those are great and they're good and they serve their purpose. But I think what really matters, and this is where we as the body have got to do better, It's going to come through being better neighbors to people and spending time around a table. Does that make sense? That's, let's just really, let's, not, let's, let's get rid of the generalities. If this church is going to grow, we have to be better neighbors. And we have to spend more time with people who are not a part of this body around a table, sharing life. You know what that is? That's called practical theology. It's not about just standing up and preaching and teaching, but it's about living, living an authentic life that reflects Jesus, that reflects who we are as image bearers of God. It's about washing feet in 2017. Do we really need literal foot washers in 2017? No, we don't. So we have to contextualize it. What does that mean? Well, it might mean going and helping your neighbor clean up their yard after a storm. Or helping take care of your kid's neighbor when, or your, your neighbor's children when, when, when maybe there's something going on in their family or helping them clean up their yard or work on their car or whatever it might be. It might just be about extending an invitation for them to come over and just hang out. But in the process, it's just about living out your life authentically 
before them. And I think that's where it comes from. It's about being practical. It's about being real. Remember we talked about being real back at the beginning of the year? I think that's what it is. It's about being genuine about who we are. I think what we see here in Acts chapter 2 is this community of believers who pull together, who are depending upon God, and they're depending on one another for their survival, for all of their needs. The guy that I mentioned earlier, Eugene Peterson, he says the church is God's people doing the work of Jesus in his absence. Okay? Jesus, when he ascended, he went back up to heaven. What did he go to do? He's there preparing a place for us, and he leaves us here with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and our job is to continue the work of Jesus, right? What do we see Jesus doing? We see him, share, see him sharing life with people. We see him meeting needs where he can. We see him sitting around a table with people who need him the most, right? This is what this community devoted their lives to, to the apostles' teaching about Jesus. This is what we've got to do. So we have to ask ourselves, is this our vision for the church? Or is our vision something else? Or maybe the question is, do we even have a vision? We're working to try to cast some new vision. Because we recognize that we're not meeting needs the way that we should be. But we need to be and we want to be. And so we want to start rethinking what that means. Because let's just put all our cards on the table. Our church is getting older. Right? And instead of us growing older, we need to start growing younger. Right? If you're with me, let me know. Which means we have to rethink some things. But we want to cast a vision that says to young families and young parents, young adults, that says, hey, look, this is your church too. And we want you to be a part of it, an active part of it. So we want to start listening. We want to start looking at Scripture. We want to see what this means to develop that kind of church that meets those needs and becomes a place where unchurched people want to come because that's what I envision. Think about that. Shouldn't that be the goal for all churches? We want to, what, what kind of church is yours? Our church is a church that people that don't go to church love to attend. Think about that. Would that not be awesome? And you know what the win is? An unchurched person comes one day, like one of your friends, one of my friends comes that doesn't go to church, and they like it so much that they come back the next week. That's the win right there. If we're doing that, then I think we have captured the importance of the cross and the empty tomb. 
that's what we want to do. This is what we're, in, you know, and, and I'm, I'm sort of just thinking out loud here. But I think if we are going to call ourselves followers of Christ, we can't be content to sit here and count up worship services. Because you know all that really is is an exercise in futility. The only purpose that really served was just to make a point that it doesn't really matter. Let that one sit down on you for a minute. What really matters? The cross and the empty tomb. And living out of that. Becoming a church that says the most important thing is the cross and the empty tomb. And you see, when we start having that kind of mindset, then all of a sudden we start to see people completely different, do we not? That's powerful. Okay, the sermon's taking a different turn. Going to church does not make you a Christian. Any more than going to the garage makes you a car. Bathroom, a toilet, you know, whatever. But what the church does is serve as an extension of Jesus into a neighborhood, into a community. Where we are, who we are, we as a body are a kingdom outpost. We, if you are a Christian, you are an agent of the kingdom of God. Now, you might not be living as one. Sometimes I don't. But if that is what you are, if you are a Christian, then at least your intention from God should be to live as an agent of God's kingdom. Does that make sense? Imagine what that does if that becomes our mindset. Does that change how we deal with people? Does it change how we handle and conduct our business? I think it can. I think it should. It changes our ethic. It can change everything because it's then all about Jesus. It's all about people. And it's all because of what Jesus did at the cross in the empty tomb. That's what it's about okay so why do we go to, to church let's reframe it why does the assembly gather to encourage one another to look at the teachings of Jesus to fellowship to break bread to pray for one another as we go out and function as agents in the kingdom of God. That's why we go to church. Does that make sense? And it's all because of the, of the cross and the empty tomb. Now, 
I heard somebody ask one time, are we armed with the language that reaches the masses or language that alienates? And, and churches can do that, I think, somewhat by default because we have church language. You know, I mean, you don't talk, you, you mentioned communion outside of church and some people scratch their head, you know. Uh, you use the more high church words like Eucharist, and people are like, what? What language are you speaking? You know what I'm talking about? You, you mentioned baptism, and people are like, because those aren't, you know, that's not everyday language. That's, that's the language of the church. And so we have to be mindful of how we talk. We have to be mindful of how we do things. But also, the church can also alienate in a completely different way because our language is one of judgment and looking down our nose and hypocrisy and all of that stuff and, 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 and self-righteousness. That is what truly alienates us, right? We can't do that. We have to be kingdom-minded in all that we do. Yesterday, um, at Kids for Christ, they were talking about being fishers of men, fishers of people. How Jesus called the fishermen to go and do that. And uh, the speaker said, uh, he said what we really need to be, not missionaries, we need to be fissionaries. <laughs> fissionaries. And it's kind of goofy, but it makes sense, does it not? That's what we need to be. Now then, how we do that? We live out our faith practically in front of people, with people. Showing that we love God, we love Jesus, we love them. Does that make sense? We gather back here because the world, the world will beat the stew out of us. And we need each other. We have to recharge, reconnect, re-energize, re-all of those re's. Reconcile, all those things. That's why we have the gathering. But also to worship our good, good God. To celebrate the cross and the empty tomb. Let's pray together.